Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great show for you guys today. We are going to start out with some interesting articles that I found in the news lately. Number one is, a Delaware man admitted he drunkenly snapped the thumb off a $4.5 million ancient Chinese statue and swiped it. Joshua Zitzer and Grace Eliza Goodwin wrote this article. A Delaware man recently pleaded guilty in Pennsylvania court to a federal misdemeanor charge related to drunkenly breaking off and stealing the thumb of a $4.5 million ancient Chinese statue. Prosecutors first charged Michael Rohana in 2018 with a theft and concealment of an object of cultural heritage from a museum, as well as interstate transportation of stolen property, which would have landed him in prison for up to 30 years. But Monday's guilty plea to one misdemeanor count of trafficking in archaeological resources means Rohana now only faces up to one year in prison. Earlier this month, the Post reported that Rohana had agreed to plead guilty to felony charges of trafficking in interstate commerce and archaeological resources. In 2017, Rohana was attending an ugly sweater Christmas party at the Franklin Museum in Philadelphia. He snuck away from the party on December 21st and into the Terracotta Warriors exhibit, which was close to partygoers and featured several terracotta sculptures of warriors from the tomb of China's first emperor, according to a 2018 affidavit. The sculptures, which are dated from 210 to 209 BC, were on loan from China and are a priceless part of the country's cultural heritage, according to the FBI. Rohana used his phone's flashlight to make his way around the dimly lit room and took a selfie with a sculpture in the exhibit space. The affidavit said he then broke something off one of the statues and put it in his front pocket, citing surveillance footage. Rohana took the thumb from a statue referred to as the Calvary Man, which was insured for $4.5 million, and brought it back to his family home in Bear, Delaware. When an FBI agent visited the property in February 2018, Rohana immediately confessed to swiping the thumb and retrieved it from a desk drawer in his bedroom, returning it to the agent. He was initially charged in 2018 with the theft and concealment of an object of cultural heritage from a museum and interstate transportation of stolen property. In April 2019, Rohana told jurors in his trial that it was a stupid mistake. His attorney told jurors that he wasn't an art thief, merely a drunk kid in a bright green ugly Christmas sweater. A jury was unable to reach a decision, resulting in the declaration of a mistrial. The retrial was scheduled for February 2020, but was repeatedly delayed due to COVID-19. Rohana's sentencing is scheduled for August 17th, according to court documents. It's really sad that someone would be that disrespectful. Those are amazing, priceless pieces of artwork, and it just makes me mad that somebody would destroy and desecrate them in that way. But that's just me. Evidently. Um, Next article. Man created deep fake porn of former classmates using their old photos, prosecutors say. And Julia Marnin wrote this article. Evidently, a man created deep fake pornography using social media photos of over a dozen women while they were in middle school and high school, according to prosecutors. 
Patrick Carey, 22 of Seaford, Long Island, New York, posted the explicit images involving the women's faces to a pornographic website, according to the Nassau County District Attorney's Office in New York. In sharing the photos, he encouraged strangers to harass and threaten them with sexual violence while sharing the women's phone numbers and where they lived, said officials. Many women were Carrie's former school classmates. A judge sentenced Carrie to six months in prison and 10 years probation with sex offender conditions on April 18th. He also ordered this man to register as a sex offender. Carrie targeted these women, altering images he took from their social media accounts and the accounts of their family members and manipulated them using deepfake technology. These incredibly brave women pieced together his depraved conduct and brought it to authorities. They were not afraid and they were undeterred. Carey previously pleaded guilty to several charges, including promotion of sexual performance by a child, second-degree aggravated harassment as a hate crime, second-degree stalking, and endangering the welfare of a child in December. Family members of the victims were not satisfied with Carey's sentencing, though. He didn't get what he deserved, one family member told the court. In New York State, there are no laws regarding those who create sexually explicit deepfakes. Because of this, authorities proposed the Digital Manipulation Protection Act that aims to prosecute sexual predators and child pornographers who make these images. The women targeted by Carrie went to MacArthur High School in Lewittown, according to the district attorney's office. Some of them said they learned Carrie screenshotted their social media photos after getting notifications from the unspecified platforms, according to the release. An investigation revealed Carrie posted the deep fake images, which show the victims' faces on the bodies of other women engaged in sex acts by using three different usernames from August 2019 until September 2021. Carrie was arrested in September 2021 and found with multiple photos of the victims after a search of his phone, tablets, social media, and online accounts. In court, Carrie apologized for his actions. His potential motive in targeting his former classmates was not specified, though. Deepfake technology can be used to make people believe something is real when it is not, say cybersecurity experts. This is pretty freaking scary. I can't even imagine if something like that happened to me, how terrifying that would be, which means it's all the more reason for us to start to develop new controls and new ways to help prevent things like that. But that is really scary indeed. Now we are going to jump right into the main case for the day. We're going to talk about Sierra Joggin. Sierra Catherine Joggin was born February 11th, 1996 in Sylvania, Ohio. Her parents, Sheila and Tom, nicknamed her C., she graduated from high school in 2014 and enrolled in the University of Toledo's Junior College of Business. She was studying human resources management while interning at her uncle's business, which is a metal stamping company. Fast forward to July 19, 2016. It's a little before 7 p.m. in Fulton County, Ohio, named after Robert Fulton, who invented the steamboat. With a total of 407 square miles and about 405 miles of land, 1.8 of that being water. Like many small towns in mid-America, there are many long, isolated country roads, sparsely populated farm areas, and cornfields. On July 19th, Sierra decided to take her bicycle home from her boyfriend's house. Initially, the two rode beside each other with him on his motorcycle, but they parted ways near Country Road 6, which was near Metamora, Ohio. 20-year-old Sierra never arrived home. 
police initially questioned her boyfriend, who she'd been dating for about seven years. Sierra actually lived with her grandmother to provide caregiving and attended the local junior college. Her and her boyfriend had known each other for about 15 years. They were high school sweethearts and they talked about getting married, but much, much later. There was no rush for either one of them. Both Sierra and her boyfriend Josh were good kids who worked part-time and attended college up until the point where Sierra disappeared. Now, Sierra did have a car, but as I mentioned earlier, she decided to take a long bike ride that day to her boyfriend's house so she could get a workout in, and it was probably a very beautiful day outside in the summer there. They rode together until they got about a mile from his house where he took a Snapchat. It was about 6.43 in the evening at that point on July 19th, 2016. Josh then, on his motorcycle, turned around and headed home, where he hung out with Sierra's cousin for the rest of the night. In the meantime, though, he was trying to call and text her throughout the night, and she wasn't answering any of these. He then texted her grandmother and the rest of her family, and they noticed that Sierra's car was where it should be, but her bike was still missing, indicating that she had never arrived home from her ride. They immediately reported her missing and began searching for her. During this search, Josh saw a white van and wrote down the license plate number. He reported that the van had been driving erratically, but the license plate did not show up in police databases. Not long after, as the day got closer and closer to midnight, police found Sierra's bicycle in a cornfield. On the scene was a pair of women's sunglasses, blood on some of the corn stalks that were several feet high. After carefully searching, the bike came into view with blood covering the seat and the handlebars. About 35 feet further in, police found a bloody sock that looked like it could be Sierra's. At the end of the trail were some men's sunglasses, headphones belonging to Sierra, some fuses, and a bloody screwdriver. There were boot prints and some tracks in the mud that police believed were from a motorcycle. Police were instantly suspicious of the boyfriend, Josh, who had been the last person to see her and who also coincidentally had a motorcycle. It also didn't help that police found a pair of bloody overalls in Josh's truck that same night. There was also blood on the grill of Josh's truck, but he claimed he had no idea what happened to his girlfriend. He also regretted not taking her all the way home. While the testing from Josh's truck was being conducted, local authorities called in the FBI to assist in the search for Sierra. As they waited for the big guns, local police made a list of registered sex offenders and convicted felons that lived in the area. They interviewed multiple men, landing on one convicted felon, 57-year-old James Dean Worley. Worley, born April 8, 1957, was born in Tacoma, Washington, but graduated from high school in Metamora, Ohio, in the class of 1978. Working various jobs in farming and on the grounds of county fairs, Worley was known to have had poor grades in school and frequently used and sold marijuana from his teenage years. In the summer of 1990, he saw Robin Gardner riding her bike near Whitehorse, Ohio, and seized the moment. He hit her with his truck, then got out, bashed her over the head, and put her in handcuffs, attempting to force the poor woman into his car with a screwdriver as a weapon. Thankfully, Gardner escaped and flagged down a passing car. Worley was later identified and convicted of abduction charges and sentenced to four to ten years behind bars. He served just three years of this sentence before he was freed early. 
It didn't take long for Worley to land back in jail, though, this time in 2000, for growing marijuana and possessing weapons, which he was not allowed to do as a convicted felon. Worley was released a second time in 2002. Freed again, Worley tried to go legitimate by starting a small business and getting licenses as a trailer transporter. When Sierra went missing, Worley lived in a rundown farm less than two miles from where the young woman disappeared. He was caring for his mother, who was 96 years old, and his mentally disabled brother. It appeared that the farm had long belonged to the family, and the Worley's 96-year-old mother's social security was pretty much keeping the family afloat. Worley was immediately defensive and started telling the authorities his brother didn't do anything. He also said he didn't know Sierra or what may have happened to the young woman. He did, however, say that he had gone for a ride on his bike and it had broken down near the scene of Sierra's disappearance. Again, this is very highly suspicious and the ears of the cops are immediately perking up to this. He stopped, claimed that he saw two bikes in the field, and he pushed his bike into hide it and considered taking one of the two bikes that he saw. He says that he was able to fix his bike by that point and returned home by around 10 p.m. He did say that he left some things on the scene and claimed that someone stole his lost fuses and his screwdriver, helmet, and glasses. All of the items were found at the bloody scene in the cornfields. He offered to let them search his bike and property and appeared to be concerned and helpful. Police thanked Worley and left. In the meantime, the blood from Josh's truck came back as belonging to an animal. They also pulled CC footage from near the scene where Sierra's bike was found. They soon saw Worley ride by on his motorcycle. Then 15 minutes later, Worley's truck can be seen driving by on the camera toward the scene of Sierra's disappearance. Worley's helmet was also found by a local farmer and brought into the police. They found the helmet to have spattered blood all over it and a bloody handprint on part of it. July 22nd, police returned to Worley's dilapidated farm, believing the helmet belonged to the older man. They wanted to look around and they asked him if they could take a look at his farm and the area surrounding. He volunteered to show them around. As police entered the house, he shared with his mother and brother they found adult diapers everywhere. They even used the boxes as furniture. He had lots of candles burning, claiming he needed to mask the smell of his elderly mother and their two large dogs. Worley seemed friendly and jovial the whole time. He let them go everywhere but his brother's trailer. He claimed to the police that his brother was too delicate to expose him to law enforcement, which again, I think at the time seemed somewhat suspicious to them. Even so, police continued searching and came to a side building like a small barn off the house. There were dirt floors and it was very, very hot in there with no airflow. There were a lot of straw bales stacked in the building and lots of flies. The floor also looked recently raked and the air smelled like chemicals that were typically used for cleaning. There was also a long green storage box partially hidden under the straw, which Worley claimed he planned to use to buy a calf and store the meat at a later time. The police then moved into the main bar. One of the officers snuck back though and peeked into the container which held plastic bags, underwear, women's clothing, and other items all carefully labeled and separated. There were also masks, ropes, bondage gear, rubber gloves, diapers, items of personal hygiene, sex toys, and a sandwich in that area, bizarrely enough. 
In addition to the underwear, there were revealing items of clothing, lacy dresses, lingerie, and lots of other women's clothing. They asked Worley why he had these bags of clothing, and he said it was not unusual, claiming he was giving it to various women that he was dating. The main barn was searched, and they took Worley aside to take his DNA and fingerprints. All the while, the FBI was setting up and getting ready to search the property, including getting dogs ready for sniffer searches. Worley continued talking away. The FBI gave him a warrant and started searching while Worley sat back down on his front porch, watching and drinking milk, of all things, in the middle of summer in that hot, hot weather. But authorities questioned him while they searched his property with a fine-tooth comb. They focused on the blood found on James's motorcycle and helmet. He claimed he had no idea where that blood came from. The authorities went back into Worley's side barn and side room off the house where all the bales of hay were stacked. They moved things around and found a hidden room. In the hidden room, there was a mattress. Then they found a false floor, which they lifted up and found a freezer buried underneath. Worley immediately claimed it was his stash pot for weed. It seemed that he had quick answers for everything and was ready to give an excuse at the drop of a dime. They asked if Sierra had ever been here, and he very, very resolutely said no, and very quickly as well. The freezer had no power supply and was lined with carpet. Is anyone getting the creeps yet? There were also air holes, according to authorities, and in the meantime, crime scene techs had descended and were pulling all the clothing out of the bags and noticing that instead of new clothing for these girls that he planned to give it to, some of the clothing was used. And there was one pair of pink panties in particular that had blood on them. Worley pivoted then and claimed the back section of his barn was intended for a pornography studio. He indicated that he intended to make videos, putting ads on the internet for casting videos where he intended to film the sex. He also claimed that he anticipated making money from this business. And he goes on this whole tangent saying his possessions were there to support his porn endeavors. The police then searched his browser history, and he had searches for things like hogtied and teen, rape, forced, hitchhiker, stranded, helpless, gag, etc. Are we starting to see a pattern here yet? In the middle of all this, Worley gets his mother ready for bed, giving her her meds and helping her get tucked in for the evening. As the law enforcement teams were wrapping up for the evening, one officer found what looked like garbage. But then upon closer inspection, they found it to be part of a human tongue. Worley said he was both shocked and horrified at this discovery. The blood on Worley's motorcycle and helmet did test positive for the presence of female blood. And authorities closed the loop, very quickly arresting him. They did not have enough evidence to arrest him for murder, but they believed that there was enough evidence to show that Sierra had been on the farm at some point and was not there anymore. In addition to the blood evidence discovered after the warrant was issued, police also found zip ties and a ski mask in Worley's truck. Next, police found Sierra's DNA on a piece of duct tape as well as the inflatable mattress in the barn. There were also super creepy recording devices and other really weird things on Worley's property, and his cell phone put him at the scene of the crime for two hours on the day that Sierra disappeared. 
or Worley indicated as well to his therapist, that he would bury the next one, indicating that he had learned his lesson from previous abductions and intended to kill the next time it happened. James Worley was officially arrested July 22, 2016, approximately three days after Sierra disappeared. On that same day, a volunteer searching nearby found a patch of disturbed dirt right off the road. There were drag marks and what clearly looked to be an abandoned hole. Next to it was human excrement. More drag marks and a new hole appeared along with the rubber glove a little ways further into the field. The FBI closed the scene and took over at that point. There was a three foot by four foot hole that reeked of decomposing flesh. Inside was a human body. Authorities worked to identify the body, which was hogtied. There was also a dog toy shoved into this young woman's mouth, tied by a shoelace. She was bound with duct tape and rope and was dressed in underwear with socks. She also had on one of the adult diapers that had been so frequently seen at Worley's house. She was covered with straw, also matching that that was found in the barn. An autopsy was conducted and it was determined that the 20-year-old had died of asphyxiation from the gag, which had been so forcefully shoved into her mouth that some of her teeth had broken off. Either that or her teeth had been broken off from her final hours with that stupid thing in her mouth. They did not find any signs of sexual assault, but there was DNA under her nails. And interestingly enough, that DNA did not match Worley's. Worley was charged in total with 19 counts, including assault, kidnapping, and a host of other felonies like evidence tampering, abuse of a corpse. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. During the trial, Worley claimed he spent the whole day on July 19th watching porn before going on a motorcycle ride. Because we all know that's what you do when you watch porn, right? Police believe he rode past Sierra and waited ahead of her to ambush her, much like he had done with his previous victim. He had the woman's clothing ready, as well as the duct tape and zip ties. Sierra rode by and Worley is thought to have hit her with his helmet, knocking her off her bike and unconscious. He then dragged her off the road and brought her back to his house, where he bound and gagged her and placed her in the barn. Once there, she was eaten alive by bugs until he provided her with some insect foggers. Worley allegedly dressed Sierra in the outfits he'd kept in the barn, masturbating while he tortured her. The room was over 100 degrees that day, filthy and filled with bugs. Worley abducted her evidently because she happened to be the first person to come along. He then hogtied and put her in a diaper, ensuring that the gag would keep her quiet. He stored her in the carpeted fridge where he provided care to his elderly mother and disabled brother. Sierra, unable to move, was slowly suffocated in that small space. Evidently, Worley found that his victim accidentally died and then panicked and buried her in a shallow grave. Understandably horrified, Sierra's family asked for the death penalty. Even so, Worley's defense team claimed he was innocent, that someone else had killed Sierra, and the DNA under her nails was proof. However, Worley's first victim testified as well as his court-ordered therapist, the trial started March 2018, where Worley was found guilty of murder. His attorneys used his sexual disorders to ask for leniency. 
Evidently, it came out during the trial that Worley had a sexual or incestuous relationship with his mother. Fortunately, though, I don't think the court bought any of the excuses that he was trying to use, and after his conviction, he stood and addressed Sierra's family. At that point, he continued to claim he was completely innocent, where he rambled and blamed everyone else for the crimes against Sierra. His speech was ridiculous, strange, and ranting until Sierra's family stood up and left the courtroom. He claimed Sierra's DNA was planted on his property and someone else kidnapped and killed her. The sentence was handed down June 3, 2019, after six hours of deliberation, where the death penalty was imposed. Worley appealed, but has since failed all appeals. In response to all of this, the Joggin family created a foundation called Justice for Sierra to provide self-defense programs for kids. They also passed Sierra's law to establish a database of violent offenders in the state of Ohio. The Joggin family also won $3.6 million in a civil lawsuit against Worley. This was mostly intended not to be executed unless Worley came upon a windfall like the lottery or selling this story, which sounds super creepy. The property where Sierra died was given to them and they tore down the buildings, planning to build a park there in her name and memory. But in August, 2020, all of this was put to a stop when the FBI came back to the property to search again. Unable to just shut his mouth, Worley had sent a letter to a reporter where he accidentally linked himself to another missing woman named Claudia Tinsley. There has been other news on this since, but as of April 19th, 2018, Worley currently awaits the death penalty. Although the initial sentencing date has long since passed, the official date has been reset to May 20th, 2025. Sierra's funeral was held July 28, 2016, and her remains have been since buried in Ohio. Just a horrific, horrific case, and the fact that this guy is still sending letters and connected to other murders is just absolutely horrific. I hope that he gets the justice that he deserves, and that Sierra's family can find some small measure of peace. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We also post pictures on Instagram occasionally. We're at the BFD Podcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!